stand in honor and reverence for the word of God, recognizing that it is his word to us. And our text this morning is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, but I'm going to be reading just verses 3 through 6. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Be seated. We're continuing our study this morning in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking, as I said, at verses 1 through 14, and this is a turning point in Luke's gospel. And the story that we're going to be looking at today is a story all about preparation. When I was uh, a young boy uh, growing up, and even to this day, uh, uh, I remain a big fan of the Chicago Cubs. I'm sorry, two weeks in a row, starting with a sports illustration. It's okay. Uh, Big fan of the Chicago Cubs. uh, Would play catch with my brother Aaron. We'd imagine being at Wrigley Field and playing for, for the Cubs. Needless to say, that didn't happen. But when we were about 10 and 11, my dad blessed us with something that was so, so special. He took us to the Phoenix area and to Tucson and, and we got to see spring training where the Cubs come before the start of the year and they get their players ready for the season. So we were 10 and we were 11 and we went there and so we got to see all of our favorite players, all the people we had seen on television that we really looked up to. And there was one player in particular that my brother Aaron loved to emulate. He was his favorite player. I would say it was Aaron's idol. And it was a baseball player named Ryan Sandberg. He was the second baseman for the Chicago Cubs. He was a real special player, eventually becomes a, a Hall of Famer. And Aaron just loved Ryan Sandberg. I, I enjoyed him too. My guy was, was Mark Grace. He was the first baseman and and, uh, and so we go to, to Arizona, we go to spring training. Back in the day, spring training was really special back then because you could get real close to the players. I mean, they would have some fences and things, but, but you could get super close and have interaction with them. And we had one goal for spring training. Yes, it was to watch the Cubs and to enjoy getting to see them play, but it was to get an autographed baseball from Ryan Sandberg. We believed that it was possible. And my dad said, it it is possible, but you have to be prepared for it. You see, the players would transition from the field to the batting cages to the parking lots. And if you positioned yourself in the right place and at the right time and you were ready, you could potentially get an autograph. So for the first few days of spring training, we enjoyed the games, but we kind of mapped out and tried to, you know, stalk the players and figure out when would be the best time to get the autograph. And we finally decided on this, this one place and as the days went by, we, we did, weren't able to get the autograph until the last day we came. And my dad sat us down before we went to the ballpark. He said, now listen, boys, we've talked about this. We've got to be here at a certain time because that's when they're going to be doing batting practice. You need to stand in this one location because he'll pass you by. But make sure that when he passes you by, he's working so that you have your ball and your pen ready. And you need to say to him, Mr. Sandberg, can I please have your autograph? And so we said, okay, okay, okay. And so we get to the park that day. We watch the bit of the game. And then we see that Sandberg is making his way to the batting cages. And so we go 
and we do exactly what my dad says. We have prepared for this, this moment. And sure enough, he goes to the batting cages, and he comes out of the batting cages, and there we are. By the way, I was going to pull up a picture of my brother and I at this age, but we were so dorky looking. I just didn't want to embarrass myself. And there we go. My brother's standing there with a ball and a pen in hand, you know, and he says to him, you know, I think he knocked over a toddler to get to him, but that was okay. You know, he's like, Mr. Sandberg, can I please have your autograph? You know, he's a skinny little guy, big glasses. And Sandberg comes over and he says, sure. And he grabs the ball in my brother's hand. And I'm thinking, my brother's like, I'm never going to wash that hand again. He touched me. And so he takes the ball, signs it, Ryan Sandberg, and he hands it back to my brother. And I was standing right there as well. I'm like, well, here's my opportunity. Mr. Sandberg, can I have your autograph? And he says, yes. And so he takes it and he signs it. And we walked away. My dad, I can still remember, he was standing off, you know, kind of in the distance. We turned around and he had that, you know, fatherly grin on his face. And we were just beaming, you know, this was before cell phones. We get back to the hotel. We call my mom. We got Ryan Sandberg. We were so happy. We were blessed because we got to meet somebody that we looked up to. We got his autograph. But what it really boiled down to was what my dad said. When we got back to the hotel, he said, well, you got your autographs. He said, yeah. He's like, do you know why you got your autographs? And we said, because he signed our balls. And he said, you were prepared. You were ready. You were in the right, right place. And so we received the blessing because we were prepared. Today's message, as we come, is a message about receiving blessing because one is prepared. How great it was to get an autographed baseball that we still have to this day from Ryan Sandberg, that was great. But church family, I'm here to tell you that there is no blessing, there is no greater joy than the experience of knowing Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can compare to having it in your life than truly knowing Jesus for who he is. But our text is going to show us today that just like getting an autograph from your favorite baseball player, if you want to experience and know the blessing of Jesus, there's some preparation that needs to take, take place. And it all boils down to the ministry of a man named John. So with that, open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3 if you're not there already. Our text starts in this way. In Luke chapter 3, by the way, congratulations, we made it out of chapters 1 and 2. We are now in chapter 3. That's a victory in itself. It says this. Look at the first two verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Stop right there. Here we come in Luke's gospel, and this is a significant turning point because the text that we are reading is a fast forward, if you will. The last time we were in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 2, it ends with Jesus as a young man, he's 12 years old. All of a sudden, though, Luke's gospel kind of fast forwards a number of years, and we know that because of the names and the times that he states here. In fact, Luke begins chapter 3 the way he does because he's trying to anchor for us the events we're about to read in time and space. And all the names that you just read and the places you just read, they actually serve two purposes. One is practical and one is theological. The practical purpose is like what I said. If you're a historian in ancient days and you're trying to get people to understand when something was taking place, 
It wasn't easy as saying in 1952 such and such happened or in 1776 such and such happened. They had a lot of different calendars in the ancient world, so the only way that you actually knew when something was taking place was to reference the people, the rulers that were around at that time. And fascinatingly enough, Luke gives us so much detail here. He gives us so many different rulers that we can actually narrow in today, historically, on the time frame. It's somewhere between AD 26 and AD 29, the events that you're reading here uh, take, take place. And so Luke has a real practical purpose. He's like, I want you to know when the events that we're now gonna be talking about have taken place. Also though, this, this one, I, I find really, this is kind of like a side note. There's an apologetic, there's a defense of the faith that I want to draw your attention to. There's, there's one name in this list, Lysanias, this, this one ruler that's mentioned. Um, historians, specifically liberal historians for a number of years said, you can't trust Luke because we know that that ruler existed, but according to our documents that we have, that ruler existed some 60 years before all these other guys. So Luke is actually an incorrect account. Well, wouldn't you know it though? Recent scholarship uncovered additional documents. And it just so happens that we discovered that there was another man with the exact same name who was the ruler in that region at that time. And so rather than archaeology disproving the historicity of Luke's account, most recent archaeology has proved that his word is actually true. So that one was for free. But if you, if you doubt the word of God, it, just time and time again, archaeology is proving these things to be true. Now, there's two names in here that I just want to highlight real quick. Pontius Pilate and Herod. The reason why I want to highlight them is they're going to they're going to factor very significantly into Jesus's ministry later on, specifically the last week of Jesus's, Jesus's life. But there's a theological reason why Luke also draws our attention to these individuals. Do you see here that the civil authorities that he mentions, every single one of them is a non-Jew. And the place, though, that they are ruling over is where? Israel. So you have a bunch of non-Jews ruling over God's people. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a, it's a bad thing. And so Luke is letting us know, look at how at this time and place, you have these pagan rulers who are over the people of God. This is outside of God's design. Not only do you have pagan rulers, civil authorities, but also the religious authorities are messed up. It references here that there were two high priests ruling in this time. Do you know what the problem with that was? God had said that there was only supposed to be one high priest at a time who served the people of God. Yet we do know that there were two serving in this function. It was a father-in-law father and a son-in-law. And that was a problem because what it shows us is the religious leaders at the time had broken away from even God's design and how they were shepherding the people of God by rather than allowing God to appoint the high priest as was the custom, Instead, the high priesthood was being passed on by nepotism. And not only was it being passed on by nepotism, but there were two men serving in that function rather than God. Why do I share this with you? Luke, in telling us these names, is saying, listen, here's when it takes place historically, but also you need to know, Israel's not in a good place. The religious leaders are messed up. The country is overseen by people that are not faithful followers of 
the Lord. But with all that said, what's happening? What was happening in this time and place? Well, verse 2 tells us, look what it says. At this time, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Uh, True or false? We have heard about John already in Luke's gospel. True or false? It's true. Okay, we have. All right, true. We have. In chapters 1 and 2, John was this unique baby boy that was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Why he was a unique baby boy was because his mom and dad were super old. When an angel came to Zechariah and said, I know you can't have babies, but God is going to make it possible for you to conceive. Zechariah, you're going to have a son through Elizabeth. And his name's going to be called John. And you know what? He's going to be the fulfillment of the prophecy. And what prophecy is he going to fulfill? He's going to fulfill the prophecy about the coming Messiah. How a prophet would come before the Messiah to prepare people for him. That's who your son's going to be. So already in this gospel, we've learned about John, his miraculous birth, and the role that he would play. And what the text tells us here is something new. As he's a grown man, the word of God came to John. Why is that significant, church? Because it's telling us John is the prophet. For 400 years, the word of God had not come to anyone in Israel. Did you know that? At the start of Luke's gospel here, God had not spoken through a prophet for 400 years. So it is no small thing when we are told that God's word came to to John because it's telling us that John was a prophet. But not only was he a prophet, when God's word came to someone, it was because God was giving them a mission to fulfill. I like to say it this way, John was a man who was on a mission from God. He was on a mission from God. That's why the word of the Lord came to him. And so what was the mission of God that that John the Baptist had? Now, by the way, you're going to see here and you're going to hear me refer to John as John the Baptist. That doesn't mean that he was part of the Baptist denomination. Are, are Are you tracking with me? We call him John the Baptist because of what he did. He baptized people. But it doesn't mean that he was a Baptist. Okay, moving on. Here we go. Look at the mission that he was given. It's actually found in verses 3 through 5. And he went into the region around the Jordan. This is in southern Israel. It's a very sparsely populated and uh, agriculturally, there's not a lot going on there. And he goes down there and it says, and he proclaims a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he does it as it is written in the book of the words of the of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Right here, Luke tells us that in fulfillment of a prophecy given by Isaiah, John has a mission. The mission that John has, I'm going to share it with you and then we're going to unpack it. The mission that God has given to him is to prepare people to receive Jesus. This is his mission. It's his sole purpose that the Messiah is coming, but the people are not ready. Work needs to be done. You see, when God had given the prophecy of Isaiah, 
The original context in which he gave it was that the people of God were struggling. Israel was in a dark place. Hezekiah had, had failed once again as a king. And this prophecy in Isaiah 40 was actually the promise of God to the people that one day a king would come. A king would come who would make things right. But before he came, you should be looking for someone. A voice who would be crying in the wilderness. A person who would be making preparations, helping the people prepare to receive that coming king. And see, the context for this is in the ancient world, before the Romans kind of got their Roman road project together, it was difficult to travel. Roads were not well maintained or taken care of, except, except when the day came for a king to move from point A to point B. If you were a king over a large empire or even just over a specific region, what was traditional to do was to send someone out before the king began to move. And what that person would do is exactly what we see here. They would basically become graders. They would make sure that the road was wide enough to hold the caravans. They would make sure that there would be no impediment to the king being able to move from point A to point B. And so it seems maybe kind of outrageous, but it really wasn't, wasn't so. They would fill in ditches. They would build bridges if necessary. They would level hills all so that the king had the smoothest transition to where he was looking to, to go. You wanted the place to be ready as the king made his way. And this would be dangerous. It would be dangerous for the people who were making the way ready because, because sometimes those construction projects would be difficult. But it would also be dangerous because not only were you to prepare the road for the king, but you and I, if we were on the, the path where the king would travel, we would need to be prepared for the king's coming. And so the person who went out would not just oversee the construction project, but would go into the villages, would go into the places where the king would come through and say, your king is coming, and here's how you are to respond when the king comes. Here's the honor you're supposed to, to give them. Now, some people didn't like that message. Some people would receive that message because they understood who the king was. And sometimes when the messenger went out, we have examples in history where they wouldn't always come back. But this has been the pattern. All throughout history, you would prepare for the king's arrival. Even today, we still do this. In fact, this just happened recently, at least not for a king, but for a president. Um, it was actually not to be political or anything, but just a few months ago in San Francisco, um, the president of China was coming to visit. I don't know if you remember this story. The president of China was coming to visit, and in preparation for his coming, I don't know if you guys know this, but San Francisco has a bit of a homeless problem. Do you know this? Yeah? They kind of take over certain areas of, of the city. I want to show you two pictures. Um, this is some of the, the primary thoroughfares in San Francisco. These were pictures that were taken uh, by reporters in the weeks leading up to uh, the president of China coming to San Francisco. But we here in America didn't want it to look like that, and so this is what it looked like the day before the president came. People went in, and they removed the homeless encampments. They cleaned up the streets. Why did they do this? Well, because the president of China is coming. We want, we want him to be well-received. We want him to think well of us, and so this is what they did up in San Francisco. When, it, when the prophet Isaiah says, make way for the king, like, we've been doing that since Jesus' time, and we still do it today. But John's ministry was not simply to get ready for the president of China. He was to get the people ready to receive Jesus. And guess what, church? 
He was excited about this mission and he embraced this mission fully. We know that he embraced it because if you go to John's gospel, and it, John's gospel is written by Jesus' disciple John, not by John the Baptist. In John chapter 1, here's the words that we read. Talking about the events that are happening here in Luke's gospel, we have this additional story. It says that while he was there, some Jews sent from the priests and Levites from Jerusalem asked him, who are you, John? And he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed and he said, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. I'm not the promised one. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And that's in reference to Moses. And he said, no, I'm not. So they said to them, then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said to them, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And so they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize them with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. John said, I'm clear on who I am. I'm clear on my mission. And I'm content with my mission because the one who's coming after me, he is one whose sandal I'm not even worthy as the lowliest servant would do for a master. I, I don't even deserve to take his sandal off his foot. John fully understand who he was in relation to the coming Messiah and why he fully embraced his mission. Now here's where I just wanted to just pause for a second. Let me ask you this question. Why should somebody want to receive the Jesus that John is coming to make known? Why should people be prepared for this coming Jesus? I, I have to move away from Luke's gospel just for a second to say Jesus says it best. I love this passage so much because it's so clear for us. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Are you familiar with this passage? Have you heard this? These are Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you want to know why Jesus is the source of ultimate blessing and ultimate joy for any person and why I would want to be prepared and do whatever's necessary to receive him, it's because Jesus says, listen, if I am the way, that means without me you are lost. When he says, I am the truth, that means without me, you are living a lie. And when he says, I am the life, come on now, that means without him, you are what? You're dead. It's no, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, we just kind of run past that passage. But Jesus is saying, without me, you're lost. Without me, you're dead. Without me, you're living a lie. Oh, and by the way, you're an orphan without a family because God is not your father. But, but to have Jesus, to receive him for who he is, to take in the fullness of who he is, then what he's saying is, you are on the way. 
You do have the truth. You do have life and you are part of God's family. If Jesus is not beautiful to you, if Jesus isn't something that you want so deeply in your life, it's because you don't understand what you have without him. But if you have him, you have all that you'll ever need. It's why John, later on, John the Baptist, he will see Jesus coming. And when we have record of this in John's gospel, it's only mentioned briefly in Luke's, and he says when he sees Jesus coming, he says these words. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he sees Jesus, he says, you want to receive this one because he's the one who takes away the sins of the world. He makes all that is wrong and he writes it. Listen, I want this. I want to know the fullness and the blessings of Jesus. And John says, if you're going to do that, then you have to be prepared. And now it leads to the question, how is he going to do this? How, how are we to be prepared for, for, for Jesus, to receive him for, for who he is? Well, the text makes very clear. Look at verse 3 with me. He says, and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming. Stop right there. Proclaiming. John had a message of proclamation. That was his method for fulfilling his mission as he went about proclaiming. The method of John the Baptist was, a, was the proclamation of a message. There was something that people needed to hear. There was some message that you and I need to receive to be prepared for the blessing of Jesus. And what is that message? I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to say, at first, it doesn't sound very fun. Here's the message. Are you ready? It goes on. And he went, verse 3, into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You want to receive Jesus, you want to know him in his fullness, to be prepared for him. The message of John the Baptist is so simple. Here it is. Are you ready? Repent. Repent. Now, I don't know about you, but whenever I see the word repent, I'm like, well, that makes sense. We're in a church. This is what church is about. Uh, you're a sinner. You, you need to repent. Well, yes, but let me tell you, the word repent, rather than being a word that, that carries with it a certain amount of baggage, rather than it being an unfavorable word or, or a negative word, is actually something that, think about it, church, in the context we should be celebrating because you see what John is telling to us. If you engage in this thing called repentance, then you are prepared to receive Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, then you receive all that Jesus is and all that he has for you. So repentance isn't a bad thing. It's actually a glorious thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. But what it involves isn't always at first glance the most, the most pleasant it's not always something that we long and look with joy to do. But to do it is to experience the fullness of Jesus. So I have you a question for you. What is repentance? What does it actually mean? Well, John shows us in his interactions with the crowd, he gives us insight onto what this baptism of repentance is actually all about. It's first and foremost this. The acknowledgement and confession of your sin. 
If you want to know what repentance actually is, it starts with this, the acknowledgement and confession of your sin or of your wrongdoing. Do you see how it says that he went throughout the region proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is always tied to the forgiveness of sins. It's the acknowledgement that you have sin in your life. There are things that you have done in disobedience to God and therefore to his word. And because you have disobeyed, you've engaged in wrongdoing. And the wrongdoing is called sin. And so you can't experience forgiveness. That is the release from the debt, the release from the punishment, if you don't believe first and foremost that you have sin in your life. Repentance requires an acknowledgement of sin, but not just an acknowledgement of sin, a confession of sin. You're like, what's the difference? I can look at something and say, that was a sin, but confession takes it a step further. Confession is coming, and the Greek word for it is homo and that is to speak the same. We get the word homo, same, legizimo, to speak. And so when I'm saying that, that I confess my sin, it's saying, God, you call that sin and I call that sin. And because you call that sin and, and I call that sin, I understand that that sin has to be dealt with. It's not just saying, oh, that's sin over there. It's saying, no, that's my sin because you call it sin and it has to be addressed. And you might say, Dave, where do you see that in the text? Well, I just completely made that all up. No, I didn't. It's right here in the text. Notice that when the crowds come to John, he proclaims to them a baptism of repentance. Now, baptism, church family, that's being referred to here is different than the baptism you'll witness on a Sunday here at our church. You see, John is speaking to a Jewish crowd, unlike I'm speaking to here. And the Jews in the Old Testament, they understood baptism, but differently from you and I. Baptism took place, but Jews were never baptized. Jews would do ritual cleansings. They would go before worship into these mikvahs and they, would, and they would cleanse themselves, they would wash themselves, but it would be a washing that they would do of themselves so that they could be presentable and go and see God. Baptism, though, the word that's used here in the baptism that John is referencing was only done to Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. So if you were outside of God's covenant family, what you would do as a Gentile if you wanted to be a part of God's covenant family is three things. You would make an acknowledgement to the religious leaders that you would walk in obedience to God's laws, that you would submit yourself to God's laws. Number two, you would, if you were a man, commit to the act of circumcision. So you would be then circumcised. And then thirdly, after you were circumcised, the last thing you would do is you would be baptized. And the baptism that was done of a Gentile was that a Gentile was saying, I'm a dirty Gentile, I am unclean, and I need to be cleansed in order to enter into God's family. So I will commit to his law, I've committed to circumcision, and now I will be baptized by you as a means of forsaking my Gentileness and being accepted into God's family. So when John comes here, church, and John preaches a baptism of repentance and he calls these Jewish followers to be baptized. This was crazy. 
You see, because what he was saying is, if you want to be prepared for the coming of Jesus, you need to acknowledge and confess that it doesn't matter that you're part of Abraham's family. It doesn't matter that you're a Jew. Your hereditary line has nothing to do with your standing before God. All need to acknowledge their sin and receive what is to come. And this point is made so clear when look at what happens. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. How about if I started off a Sunday morning like that? Good morning, church brood of vipers. No, he's saying, you guys have issues. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have who? Abraham is our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. He says, I'm calling you to repentance, but if you're going to experience the baptism that I have, that is a baptism that you acknowledge and you confess that your lineage means nothing, but you must confess and acknowledge you are sinners in need of the salvation that can only come from this king. So church family, what does repentance actually look like? What is required of us in repentance? It is the acknowledgement and the confession of our sins. That is the first step always in repentance. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. Forgiveness is experienced through repentance. There is no forgiveness if there is no repentance. If if I don't believe that I have a debt that I owe to God, how can I ever experience the release from that debt? How can I ever experience forgiveness unless I confess and acknowledge that sin before God? Repentance does not save you, but it is through repentance that we get to experience the blessing and the joy and the forgiveness that comes in and through Jesus Christ. There's a, a show on television uh, put on by that uh, celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay. Do you know Gordon Ramsay? Um, it's called Kitchen Nightmares. And what's always interesting about this show is Gordon Ramsay will go to a restaurant that needs desperate help. Typically, the restaurant's in debt. Typically, the restaurant has a ton of problems. And Gordon Ramsay goes there with the express purpose of bringing his expertise and his help to that restaurant. But what inevitably happens is when he goes to the restaurant and he meets the owner, he meets the chefs, they typically sit down for the first half of the restaurant and the, the people are always like, so-and-so's the problem, the sous chef is the problem, my servers are the problem, it's the, the quality of the food is because of this. And they just, they just moan to Gordon Ramsay about how everything else is the problem in their restaurant except guess who? Them. And what inevitably happens is Gordon Ramsay just lets them hang themselves. <laughs> They just go on throughout the episode and then finally he sits down and he points out to them all that is wrong in the restaurant and all that pertains to them. And the only people, church, that are ever helped by Gordon Ramsay, the only people who ever see their restaurants turn around are the people who finally stop, stop pushing the blame onto other people and they own their problem in it. And the moment they do, Gordon Ramsay's like, now I can help you. Now, now I can do what I'm here to do. But if those people continue on, and there are people that do that, that will not acknowledge their fault, that will not acknowledge their wrongdoing, 
they can ever experience the blessing that they have in Gordon Ramsay Church. Jesus Christ didn't come to fix the restaurant of your life. <laughs> Jesus Christ came to make you new, but he can't enter in in that. And he can't do that work in you if there's no acknowledgement and confession of that wrongdoing. But once you do, then you begin to enter in. Then you begin to experience the blessing of what Christ has to offer. And if, and if then you're walking in that, if that acknowledgement and the confession of sin is being made, then, then John shows us that something else begins to happen in your life. Repentance isn't just solely the acknowledgement and the confession of our sins. It's also the rejection of your sin and the living of God's ways. Repentance is a turning from and a turning to. It's saying, yes, these things are sin. God, you call that sin. I call that sin. When, when I'm welcoming Jesus as the king, when I make those confessions, then you're coming and saying, and because that's sin, I no longer want that in my life. Because you're freeing me from all that, I'm going to turn to this over here. I'm going to turn to, to your ways. And John tells the people that are there with him, that's exactly what it looks like. Look at verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If repentance is genuine, if acknowledgement and the confession of sin is real in your life, you're going to see this turn away from sin and turning to, to God's ways. He goes on and he says it to this. He comes at verse 9 and he says, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You want to know? If you're really acknowledging your sin and confessing it to him, if you really see your sin for what it is and who Jesus needs to be for you, it will manifest itself in good fruit in your life. That's why I say it will manifest itself in walking not in your ways, but in God's ways. And then something happens in the text after John says this that really humbled me this week and brought back to mind something in, in my heart, in mind, that I want to just keep with me throughout the rest of my life, and it's this. When John comes and he confronts them, and he says repentance isn't just about acknowledgement and confession of sin, but also rejection of it and turning to God's ways. Look what the crowds say to John in verse 10. They do something. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? We're hearing you, John. What then shall we do? The, the question that they're asking is, what will it actually look like in our life to bear this good fruit that you've talked about, fruit that's consistent with repentance? And what happens is remarkable to me. And there's this, there's this, there's this lesson in this for all of us. In verse 11 and following, what I would think that John would do is say, you know what, I've been preaching, I've been teaching you idiots, you should know what it looks like to walk in God's ways. But that's not what he does. He comes to people who are genuinely asking, listen, we, we, we hear what you're saying, we know what we need, but then what will it look like? What do we need to do? John comes to them very graciously and patiently. And rather than telling them, figure it out for yourselves, he reveals to us a truth. The truth that he reveals to us is this. God's ways are not always evident to us. 
Somebody might be able to call something sin and acknowledge it as sin before God, but not always know, but then what, is it, what am I turning to? What does it look like to, to walk in the life that Jesus has for me? What does it look like to put that sin aside and actually walk in God's ways? It's not always evident to us. He, this passage is showing us sometimes we actually, we need to be taught. It's why God puts people in our lives, pastors, elders, teachers, mentors, that's why we're called to disciple one another. That's why we're called to grow with one another. Because the things that need to change in us aren't always that evident. And we know this is the case because he comes and look at verse 11. He gives three teachings, three examples to them of what the fruit of repentance would look like in a person's life. If you're welcoming Jesus... He says, verse 11, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. He says, if you're repenting of sin in your life, like, I don't know, the sin of selfishness, and you look at your life and you say, I've been a selfish person. He says, look at your life. If you have two tunics and somebody comes to you and they're in need. What do you do? Well, the person who is selfish wouldn't give a tunic, but the person who's generous, who understands the generosity of Jesus, he takes that extra tunic and he gives it to somebody else. If you have an abundance of food, you're not a hoarder, but the person who recognizes that all that they have comes from the Lord shares it with those in need. He's teaching the crowd, saying this is what good fruit looks like because you don't necessarily understand how to apply these things. Then he moves on to very specific group, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to John, teacher, well, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Church family, does this not seem like the most obvious thing in the world? <laughs> Like, if you are taking more than you are authorized to do, we would call that what? Stealing, robbing. Yet he feels the need to help these tax collectors who this has been the pattern of their whole life to say, it might not be obvious to you, <laughs> but if you're really repenting, if you really want to know what it looks like to live in this life with Jesus as king, stop doing that. Stop taking more than you're authorized to do. In fact, he comes here and he says to them, this isn't what God has for you. And then finally he comes to one final group. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. That's the good fruit Contentment, not using your position to abuse people, to get them to do what you want, but to actually use your position in such a way to be a blessing. I'm so appreciative for that and what John does there because sometimes I think that when somebody repents, they should know exactly the right thing to do and how to make it right and what it would look like to walk in God's ways. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we need people to come alongside and, and help us. And John doesn't yell at them. John doesn't get upset with them. They ask a genuine question and he gives them a genuine answer. Because what John wants is to see his mission fulfilled. He wants to see people like you and me prepared for Jesus.
Now, for those in this room here this morning who have never actually looked to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who have never taken that first step and said, no, I actually am a sinner, I do not have Jesus over my life as Savior and Lord, then the message of John to you is the message that it was to the people back then. You need to repent. You need to repent in this way. You need to say, I am not living with you as my Lord and Savior. I confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, and I want to walk in his ways. But as I look out at all of you, I think that's probably not the majority in this room who are in that camp. Most of us are probably in the camp that I find myself in today. What does the message of repentance look like for David Wojnicki today? Does David Wojnicki still sin every day? What do you think the answer to that is? Yes! Do you still sin every day? Wow, not a lot of boldness there. Do you still sin every day? Yes. You sin and I sin in ways that we don't even know. But I have a question for you. So is repentance for us just a one and done thing? No, the message that this here has for us is a message of sometimes there's sin in your life and in my life that continues on as a pattern. And what the call of a passage like this is for us is to say, When was the last time you took a moment to ask God and to invite him to say, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Is there any area of my life that I'm not walking in repentance? Because is repentance a bad word? No, it's something that we do to continue day by day to walk in the fullness of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life for us. It's not something that we do every day as a means of earning our salvation. It's a way and something that we do every day that as 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a way that you and I can know more and more of Jesus every day as we come to him and say, Lord, you are over all my life. I don't want there to be any hidden sin or undealt with sin. And the only way that sin can be dealt with by Jesus, the only way that he can be that help, just as Gordon Ramsay comes into a restaurant and says, do you want help with that issue? And like, no, 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 I got it under control. The same way if you and I have sin in our life that we're not able to deal with, we have to go to him, we have to take it and we have to acknowledge it. We have to confess it and then we have to reject it and we have to turn to Christ. And he is there to help us in that. And when we do that, that is where an ongoing joy every single day is found because we have a Savior who is sufficient to help those in need. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a moment where we're just wanting to stop and pause. Lord, today, even this moment, is an opportunity for us right now to put into practice, Lord, what we've just heard preached. I thank you that every time we come to a service on Sunday morning, we have our time of confession. And that time of confession, Lord, for us is is the opportunity to, to do what we just talked about here. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, it's the time for us to realign ourselves back under your reign and rule. You came as the Messiah to save. And so, Lord, we don't want in our lives anything that would be a stumbling block to 
knowing the fullness of who you are and what you came to do. And so, Lord, I pray even this morning that you'd hear the prayers of your people. I pray that as we go out into the week, we would be honest. And that if we see sin in our life, Lord, we would quickly take it to you. Not fearful that acknowledging it is something that's going to make us feel shame and guilt, but instead, by acknowledging it and confessing it, we know that we will hear your words where you say, you are forgiven, you are cleansed. Now walk in the newness of life I have for you. We thank you for that great joy. We thank you that we know that that message is true because we're going to come to your table where we take of the bread and the cup and in taking of it, we're going to make that proclamation to the praise and glory of your name. And all God's people said, amen and amen.